0: Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Beth Stovell, a member of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Claudia Herrero-Montero, John Stovell, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. And I'm Dr. Candace
1: Smith. Today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen is associate professor of Old Testament at Biola University's Talbot School of Theology. Before teaching at Biola, Carmen lived in Alberta for four years where she taught at Prairie College. Her books include Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, A Reexamination of the Name Command of the Decalogue, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, and Praying the Psalms with Augustine and Friends. Her latest book is Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. She is currently working on a commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic. Carmen is an active member of the Institute for Biblical Research, the Society of Biblical Literature, and the Evangelical Theological Society. You can find her writings around the internet at her own blog, as well as at Christianity Today, The Well and the Politics of Theology blog. She has appeared on nearly 100 podcasts and releases weekly Torah Tuesday videos on her YouTube channel.
0: This conversation will have three sections or movements. We'll begin by discussing Carmen's scholarship, then we'll explore how this connects to Christian life and the life of the church. Lastly, we'll talk about what we call the marginalia. These are fun questions uh, that help us get to know Carmen a little bit as a person. Um, And While these marginalia are sometimes seen as the other things, the things separate from our academic lives, we at Bridging Theology really believe that these aspects of our lives inform who we are as scholars and as people in really important ways. So that's part of why we talk about them.
1: Well, Carmen, welcome to the Bridging Theology
0: podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you
0: yeah, and it's uh, i'm I'm excited to have you here, you know, Carmen you and I've known each other for a while, and um we have. I'm actually really interested to ask you for you to tell us something that people might not know about you because maybe it's something I don't know.
2: yeah, <laughs> yes, okay, so I have a um, I have a deep fascination with love for uh, putting together IKEA furniture. <laughs> Ooh, I love it. I, I find it. I find it really satisfying because you open the box and everything you need is there, and it's all on the picture, and it's step by step. And anyone who can read pictures can put together IKEA furniture. So it feels it just feels really satisfying. There's no leftover odds and ends of pieces. In, at the end of the day, you've got this thing that. That worked and it was packaged in such a way as to be more environmentally sustainable.
0: <laughs> you know, I love that. I felt that way until uh, recently I tried to put together a loft bed for my son's room. And Ooh. I got stymied, and I've never gotten stymied with Ikea furniture before. Oh no. And I was like, um, um, <laughs> I feel like I might need an engineering degree for this one. Uh, oh dear. <laughs> so it took, it took like a day and a half. For all of us to put it together so oh, you know no. but i do understand that feeling when you put the last piece in and all the pieces yep. are what they need uh-huh. to be and you can yep. look at it and be like there it is
2: there it I've, is and i did that <laughs> they,
0: they actually did a study on um, the ikea effect There's is just actually this mm. uh the joy of putting it together actually has like a different effect in our brains than oh. when we just purchased something so um I, yeah it has this like pleasurable effect that you made it and I so, feel
2: like ooh. this actually ties into our conversation about being God's image and oh. the way that humans are made to participate in the creative process. So we'll get to that later. Awesome. <laughs> so just um, to
1: follow up with that, we wanted to know a little bit. We know that you have a YouTube channel, Torah
2: Tuesdays. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. This started as a pandemic project. I was living on the prairies of Alberta when COVID-19 hit, and I had just released my first book, Bearing God's Name. I had lots of trips planned and speaking engagements planned, and they all got canceled. Hmm. And so there we were. We couldn't travel, and I had time on my hands. There was nothing else happening. And I was beginning work on a commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic. And I was learning really cool things every day, but there I was in my lonely office at Prairie mm. feeling like I have to tell someone about this. <laughs> and I thought, I've never really seen someone do this before, but what if I made kind of homespun videos from my desk just talking about what I'm learning? I wonder if there'd be any interest in it. And it's been really fun to see it take off and to see how many thousands of people actually do like that, You know, look into my office and hear what I'm what I'm learning about. So I I've been working ahead in the commentary of where I'm recording, but I usually have an eight to 10 minute video each week where I talk about the next section of verses in Exodus and kind of what I'm seeing a lot of Hebrew wordplay that you can't see in English or um, certain things from historical background that might be helpful in understanding something. So I feel like the Exodus commentary is my is my uh, sandbox where I play, mm-hmm. and I just discover things. And Torah Tuesday is where I tell all my friends what I built in the sandbox <laughs> or awesome. what I found. That's awesome. so yeah, it's really fun.
0: Well, thanks so much for sharing all, um, all of that with us. That's amazing. Um, we're gonna transition to some of some questions about your scholarship and how you see yourself um, as a scholar. Um, and we're just going to start with what I think is kind of a softball question, but we just want to know Mm -hmm. more about how you became an old Testament scholar. So Mm
2: -hmm. was,
0: was, was, were you, you know, five years old and, and you were like, I want to be an old Testament scholar or did you come to that later in life? (laughs) What was that process for you? No,
2: I was going to be a missionary astronaut, famous singer. That Mm. was the plan. I was gonna go as a missionary to the jungles of Africa, I guess, or South America. It was a little up for grabs there, and I was gonna translate the Bible into another language. That was kind of the plan. And I figured when I came home on furlough every four years, I would do a singing tour and a space mission and then I could go back. <laughs> so I had it all worked out. Um, and the adults in my life didn't pop didn't burst my bubble and tell me that's not actually possible. <laughs> So I did love the Bible and my desire to be a Bible translator obviously shows that I I was into the Bible. Um, But I don't think I really knew that Bible professoring is something one could do until I was closer to being college age myself. I had a great Bible teacher in high school and I loved what he did, but I also didn't see any women doing what he did. And so I think it was a little hard for me to picture myself in that role. Yeah. And then I got to college and I had amazing Bible professors. And again, none of them were women. And I thought what they were doing was super cool, but I didn't, I guess I didn't think I'd be allowed to do it. Um, Like it would be, it would be wrong. So I, I remember a, a specific day in which I went to eat lunch in the cafeteria and I was sitting at the table and one of my Bible profs came and sat down across from the table, across the table from me and said, Carmen, have you ever thought about teaching Bible study methods? Uh, He he was the Bible study methods professor, and he had students working under him to teach what he called lab sections of that class, um, which was two hours of class each week, plus all the grading and tutoring and record keeping and all of that. And I loved being in Bible study methods, and I loved my lab. And I actually had a female lab instructor um, for, I guess it was for the second class of the advanced Bible study methods. But anyway, he asked if I'd ever thought about it. And I said, but I'm a woman, like, is that okay? And so he said, well, let's talk about it. So he took me to his office and he, he walked me through the Bible and helped me to see how he reads these passages. And then it was okay for me to be a Bible teacher too. And I was like, sweet, then sign me up. <laughs> Cause that sounds like, I can't imagine something that sounds more fun than that. And so I got to start teaching, I think I was probably 20 years old. I might have been 19 when I first started teaching in college class. So many of my students, most of my students were older than I was. And I had a fantastic time. And I thought, I want to figure out what it is I have to do to do this for the rest of my life. Mm. Like, what schooling do I need? (laughs) How how do I get this gig? Because it was pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was kind of my discovery process. That's so amazing. And I feel like it kind of, like you said, set the stage for the
1: next pieces of your career. Mm. Um, and and we've already talked about it a little bit in your introduction that your work represents the intersectionality of different identities. So you write for the church, you write for the academy, and you write for the public. Um, how do you see your vocation as a scholar related to these identities
2: and locations? Mm. Well, I love that the name of your podcast is Bridging Theology because that's actually the metaphor that I use to think about myself um, is a bridge. And I love bridges. They're beautiful to look at, right? They're just really in interesting works of engineering. But I love thinking about bridging that gap between the church and the academy mm-hmm. and going, the, having the traffic go both ways to think about what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus in the academy and to model faithfulness in the academy. Yeah. And then how can I bring the insights of the academy to the church and help people, help give people access to what's happening in scholarship. There are so many great being great books being written by evangelical scholars and things we can learn from non-evangelical scholars that help in our reading of scripture. And I feel like it's such, there's such a sea of literature that the average churchgoer doesn't even know where to start or who to trust. Mm -hmm. And so I see myself as kind of a broker of helping people discover different voices, different people whose work um, will really illuminate scripture for them. And that's Mm -hmm. really fun. It's a really fun place to live kind of between these two worlds going back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I just, I find it super fulfilling to, to not have to set, one part of myself aside, but to bring all of myself into my work. Right.
0: Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. Years yeah. ago, I felt really called about the bridge, even the other direction too. Like how mm-hmm. do we, how do we love and live well as biblical scholars who are yeah. in an academy where people are spend a lot of time hurting and, you know, yes. and, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that one of the things, um, years ago, uh, I had this sense of like God saying, I want you to go to conferences and I want you to notice not Mm. just like, not just like who's presenting what, or like, you know, what the connections you need or what networking or whatever it is you might go to a conference for, but I want you to notice like when people are hurting or when Mm -hmm. people are feel alone Mm -hmm. or, you know, so I periodically would just like go and sit, say, hi, I know I don't know you, but are you doing okay? (laughs) Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. It can be a,
2: can be a soul sucking environment, and it can be really like mm-hmm. there's hazing that happens. There's um, there's microaggressions that are happening. Yeah. There are all sorts of ways that people are made to feel like they don't belong or they don't have their voice isn't welcome. And I think you're right. It's a it's a place that's ripe for pastoral ministry, <laughs> um, walking alongside mm-hmm. scholars and helping them as they process their own identity in relation to the work that they're trying to do. Yeah. And I
0: think, you know, some of the work you've done, we'll talk a little more about it in the, later on, but some of the work you've done with um, like supporting women in ETS and in IBR mm-hmm. and in the other work that you do, you know, I think kind of picks up on that side of the bridge. Um, mm-hmm. The other side we really see in Torah mm-hmm. Tuesdays and your blog and the kinds of sure. things you write at Christianity Today, but I love mm-hmm. that you have that other side that mm-hmm. is also like leaning into how do we care well for the people beside mm-hmm. us in scholarship. And so, yeah. Um, you know, that connects nicely, I think, to the idea of what it means when we're made in God's image. Um, your most recent book being God's image, it really does help to reframe this idea of what, what does it mean when we say that you're made in God's image, as we see in Genesis Mm -hmm. one, how could you share a little bit about how you got the idea for the book Mm -hmm. and what you're hoping when someone sits down to read it, what are they getting from it?
2: Yeah. So my first book bearing God's name. Was grew out of my dissertation work. I, I wrote my dissertation on the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. And the week that it came out, or a couple of weeks before it came out, I remember sitting down with my editor, Anna Gissing, and saying, I don't, I, like, I feel like I should work on another book now, but I don't actually have an idea. Um, I haven't had that problem since. I have scads of ideas now, <laughs> but I, I was like, I don't really know what the next project is. And she's like, that's okay, it'll come to you. And then the week that the book came out, I was lying in bed. And all of a sudden, the title and the cover popped into my head for this book. I was like, oh, and and the reason why is because I argue that um, that the command not to take the Lord's name in vain is not about um, policing our speech, but that it's much broader than that. It's about us as covenant members being representatives of God among the nations, mm-hmm. that God is saying to his people, you belong to me, now go out and represent me well, And many people, as they got exposed to that idea, would then say to me, oh, isn't that kind of like being the image of God or being made in God's image? Isn't that also representational? And so isn't that kind of the same thing? Mm -hmm. And so my first foray into this topic of the image of God was an ETS paper that I gave where I tried to distinguish between the two, because I think it's actually important to recognize these are not the same thing. There's a similar representative Mm -hmm. dynamic but they're not. We can't just mush them together because every human being is the image of God. Mm-hmm. But only the covenant people bear God's name. You can't bear God's name in vain if you're not a Christian, if you're not a, a follower, uh, you know, part of God's covenant community. Communities so in the Old Testament. If you're not a member of the Jewish community, if you're not, um, you know, part of the covenant, then you you can't take God's name in vain. <laughs> That's not how it works. Um, and and yet every human being is the image of God. So I wanted to kind of pull those two ideas apart and show how they were different. And as I mulled over this idea of writing a book on what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be God's image? I realized this has so many ethical implications for how mm-hmm. we treat other people. And so this book would be an opportunity to follow those threads into lots of different other areas. Mm-hmm. And it would help me to get at what I think is one of the biggest tragedies in evangelical theology, and that is we have a very anemic eschatology. We think of Christ's return as the moment when our bodies, our souls leave our bodies, and then we're gonna like float around in heaven forever. When actually, what the Bible teaches, is that we're going to be bodily resurrected and that we're part of the new creation. Mm-hmm. So as I was playing with, you know, laying there in bed, playing with the title, oh, being God's image, what would be the subtitle? What, what is it that still matters? Oh, creation, why creation still matters. And so I try to show in the book how we can find out who we are and what we're here to do mm-hmm. by focusing on creation. But but we can also, as we trace that thread through the entire canon, we can see how Jesus fits in with that, how he models embodied humanness and then how he shows us his resurrection shows us that we have a resurrection to look forward to. Mm -hmm. So the the idea of creation care that's part of our vocation actually persists until the end of the Bible. It's not something that we cast off at a certain Mm -hmm. point. So I felt like as a as a theme, it sort of grabbed all the things I wanted to talk about. And that I felt like we're broken or underdeveloped in Christian theology.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, that's good and it's a great
1: uh, follow-up to or I want to ask a follow-up to that mm-hmm. question. So in your book you talk about environmental stewardship and um collaboration with other humans as integral parts of the human vocation. Mm-hmm. I'm also interested in your explanation that you did on the Hebrew term helper Mm -hmm. um, and in that context. So could you just share a little bit more with our listeners about how helper and creation care are interconnected?
2: You bet. So um, part of part of what I came to as I was working on I, I knew i'd have to spend a lot of time in Genesis one through three because this is where okay. this is where god's intentions for the world are made clear, his intentions the purpose for being human is made clear and I just um I was struck by several key things in these first couple chapters, one that both male and female are named the image of God in chapter one um, there's no hierarchy between humans, and that both male and female, because they're the image of God, are tasked with ruling over the earth. And it's ju- it was just striking to me that neither one was being told to rule over each other. Mm-hmm. And many times people talk about going back to Genesis or back to creation in order to find hierarchy between men and women. And I think you have, you have to go to chapter three to get hierarchy and that's after the fall. So if you want it, if you want to see God's original creation design, you have to go back farther to Genesis one and two. Mm-hmm. And part of, um, one, one place that that's really evident is when God makes the first woman. So in chapter two, verse 15, we're told Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So a few things to notice, the man has a job to do in the garden, which is consistent with this kind of global view of human vocation that we get in chapter one of ruling the earth and subduing it. And in the in this garden context, the man is told to do that, and he's told he can eat from any of the trees except one, this tree that represents the pursuit of knowledge outside of God, the defining of good and evil outside of how God defines it. That is off limits. It, and God is, in effect, saying, you need to come to me to define good and evil. I'm going to tell you what's good. And we've had, all through chapter one, this punctuating statement of what is good. And and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. God saw that it was good. The first thing that's not good in the Bible is Adam's solitariness. It's his being alone. And I think the reason it's not good is because he has a job to do that requires more than one person to do it. Like this needs teamwork. And because he's been given a command, and we do better at obeying when we have accountability. And so it's like Adam needs reinforcement. And so God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the word translated helper in the NIV is the Hebrew word "azer," And it's one of my favorite words because of how often it's misunderstood and how illuminating a word study is on this word. So I looked up every place where it occurs either as a noun or in its verbal form. And it's about 100 times in the whole Bible or in the whole Old Testament. That the word Azer appears, and lo and behold, not a single time is this word used to describe what a servant does for his master. It's always used as as a, someone who's in a position of strength. So half of half of the occurrences, about fifty of them, are Yahweh as Israel's helper or Azer, and the other half is a military ally who comes alongside and gets you out of trouble when you are. In, Maybe going to lose your battle. And so that is just so, I, I think, just so illuminating because when God makes a woman, he's making an ally to come alongside the man in the way that God himself comes alongside us to give us aid when we need aid. So this is a, we what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is a very strong picture of male-female partnership in carrying out the work of stewardship that God has given humans to do. So the ruling over the earth is is not a domination of or exploiting the earth, mm-hmm. but it's a benevolent kind of stewardship, making sure that order is maintained, that mm-hmm. um, everything, every living thing can thrive. And it's not dominating each other or ruling over mm-hmm. each other, it's a side-by-side partnership. And so that really struck me as I was working on the the early chapters of the book. And I think it has huge implications for how we think about all sorts of things in the church and in the world.
0: Well, I love how much that explores not that, you know, the book explores what does it mean for all of us to be human? But then Mm -hmm. also as we think about, you know, us as gendered humans, like what does it look like to have those relationships? And then how does that connect to the earth? And I love how you interweave those different pieces with each other um, Mm. in, in the book Um, you do it so well and you draw out with such precision, but also with so, such acce- so accessibly, um, mm-hmm. your stories okay. and what, kind of the way you come at it. Um, it often feels like you're t- listening to a friend, which I love. Oh, The, the way that you write. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I have actually, I have a student um, I don't know if I told you the story already, Carmen, but I'm telling all the podcast. Um, I was doing it in my class and we were chatting about something and, um, and we were talking about your book. Cause I like recommended, um, bearing God's, uh, name, uh, cause mm-hmm. you know, it's a Pentateuch class and, um, mm-hmm. and she's like, she's like, I love Carmen Himes. Like I love everything she does. And I was like, you know, she's one of my friends and she's like, oh. You know her, <laughs> and it was just really, really funny. Like, and then, and then afterwards, later, as she'd you know, had me for class for a while and gotten to know me a little bit, she's like, "I'm sorry, I fan go girls so hard on <laughs> carbon <laughs> <Ice. laughs> And She's like, "But now I realize, like, you're. It totally makes sense to me that you're friends." But it was just such a. <laughs> so it was funny. so funny. Like, it just made me laugh because, because to you know, I just it, what I want to say about that is that she said something very similar that she feels like she feels like she knows you from hmm. from from mm-hmm. listening to your videos from hmm. hearing what you've done with Bible project from reading hmm. your book like the way you write feels like like she she could that could be accessible to her and mm-hmm. um and so i think that's a really beautiful beautiful quality so i just wanted to say mm-hmm. that and that actually kind Thank of leads you. us to the next thing i was uh, next part of our show um i mean we've been talking already a little bit about the church and christian life um i think your the way you do what you do is so interwoven with that that um mm-hmm. we couldn't not do that but we're going to focus a little <laughs> bit more on those kinds of questions and i wanted to start with um just this idea of what has church meant to you um, mm. across your life? That could, mm-hmm. that could be, you know, um, different traditions you've been a part of or, mm-hmm. or how you've interacted with the church at different stages, um, mm. but also how you see the Old Testament being valuable for Christians.
2: Yeah. I love the church. And this is, I think, an awkward time in history to love the church because, um, you know, the Me Too movement was followed close on its heels by the Church Too movement Mm -hmm. and Mission Too movement. And we don't have a week that goes by without a headline about a church leader who's fallen into sin and without hearing more stories of people who were hurt by the church or who were abused Mm -hmm. in church settings. And so I feel like it's a weird time to say that I love the church Um, the church is broken and problematic in so many ways. There's toxic strains that run through it. But I'm convinced that the church is also God's plan A, B, and C for how he's going to get his work done, that he actually calls people together into community with others who are not like ourselves. Mm -hmm. And and that this sort of motley crew that we are is, is tasked with, bearing God's name among the nations and that there's no God doesn't have another way of proclaiming his glory among the nations except through the church. And so my own lifetime like I've I've never been through in my lifetime a season of rebellion against God and I've never been through a season where I didn't go to church every week. Um, I'm, I am I might have missed a week because of traveling or illness, but I've never been through a season where I'm just like, yeah, I just don't feel like going. Mm-hmm. To me, it's been a non-negotiable part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and I have been in lots of different denominations because we've moved a lot because of school and missions. So it's kind of amusing to me. I had just this morning, I have um, some speaking opportunities that I was reading, like, considering and praying about. One in a Presbyterian church, one in a United Methodist church, and one in a Baptist, uh, the Baptist churches of Scotland. And I, just thinking about like, that kind of covers a range. Oh, and I'm speaking at an Anglican church conference in September, and I'm going to be at a Messianic church in July, mm-hmm. and a kind of mega church, Southern mega church in, in July as well. And I, I love that. I love I love the whole body of Christ in all, it, all all the different cousins and aunts and uncles that make it up. Mm-hmm. And we all have an odd uncle or, or cousin in our family tree. And the church is like that. There's something so beautiful about the different ways that people have found to follow Jesus and live out faithfulness to Jesus. And so, yeah, to me, it's a core part of my identity as, as a member. I'm a member of the body of Christ, and I can't let that go. Um, and, and yet I see at the same time, the church really struggling to know what to do with the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So most of the churches mm-hmm. I've attended throughout my life uh, have been churches that preach from the New Testament, memorize the New Testament, sing about the New Testament. Um, and I think that's part of what drove me to Old Testament studies, because I felt this sense of people knowing I'm supposed to love the whole Bible. The whole Bible is the word of God. We say this but like, I don't actually know what to do with the old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so I found the greatest need for understanding was in the old Testament. And honestly, it's such a joy to help people discover the riches of the old Testament and, and to do it in a way that makes people excited about being part of the church and Mm -hmm. realize being part of the church means being part of a really, really old story that goes back a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, coming into teaching, I tend to teach the Pentateuch now every fall as our intro course uh, at Ambrose. And every semester I have, I I always do this, like, why are you in this class? I know it's required, Mm -hmm. but what are you interested about the Pentateuch or like the Old Testament? And the amount of times people say, I feel really afraid of the Old Testament or I feel I'm very aware that I've been preaching for a long time. Like some of the people I teach because they're seminary students, some of them have been preaching for 20 years and they haven't been preaching from the Old Testament because Mm it just scares them or it's hard or, you know, and the gift to be able to be like let's find a way for you to love this. Like, let's, 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 let's show you why this is the, like a rich part of the word of God. That's good for all those things that second Timothy three says. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Love it too.
1: (laughs) Well, something I appreciate about your book being God's image is that you challenge the common reading of God's image in us being destroyed, damaged, or lost when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis three. Could you talk a little bit more about why you think this is and how it affects our daily lives as mm-hmm. Christians?
2: Sure. So this goes back to, you know, talk about bridging the academy and the church. I think it was 2009 when I first heard a talk on this topic at ETS. It was John Kilner, and he was giving a plenary address on the image of God. And he said, he, he put up on the slide the names of people that he had heard or, or seen in print say that the image of God had been lost, damaged, or destroyed, including his own name, because it was something he'd been teaching for years. Mm-hmm. And he he wanted to write a book about the image of God, and so he was digging back into the scriptures, and he came to the conviction that the Bible actually doesn't teach that, that the image is lost or destroyed. And, and I found his, his presentation so compelling that on the spot, I changed my view, and I was like, okay, the image is intact, what are the implications of this? And he's an ethicist. And for him, it was really clear that when the image isn't lost or diminished in any way, then that means the person retains full dignity and needs to be treated with full dignity. But if you say that someone has a diminished image of God, or if it's possible to lose it altogether, then there goes the basis for ethical treatment of other people. And so I found that really compelling. And the two places that I I see in Genesis that really support this, um, there there are only uh, three passages in Genesis that even mention the image of God, and they're the only ones in the Old Testament that do. So Genesis 1, when the first humans are created, uh, Genesis 5, and then Genesis 9. So in Genesis 5, it says, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. And that word likeness is parallel with image in one twenty six, and I take it as a as a synonym, a rough synonym of of image. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them humankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And what I see happening here, now some, some scholars come to this and they say, see, the image of God is gone. It just says likeness, not image. And when it says image, it's talking about Seth, being in Adam's image, not humans being in God's image. So this, this indicates to some people that there's been a diminishment of some way. Seth isn't the image of God. He's just the image of Adam. And the reason I think this doesn't work is because Genesis nine affirms that humans are still the image of God very clearly. And so I I think we have to use that to help us understand what's happening here. What I think is happening is God's giving us a glossary for part of what it means to be the image of God. Mm we are God's image the way Seth is Adam's image. So there's, this, there's an element of kinship to our relationship with God that we're, fa- we're part of God's family. Mm-hmm. And just like parent and child don't look identical, and they aren't identical, they're not the same person, we would also say, well, we're not God. We don't even necessarily look like God, but we represent God. We have this family tie mm-hmm. that binds us together. But then when we get to Genesis 9, it's very clear that the image is still intact because after the flood, when Noah comes out of the ark, God gives him new instructions about, um, okay, you can eat meat, but not meat with blood in it. And then he's going to demand an accounting for the lifeblood of humans, whether they're killed by animal or human. It says in verse 6, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for the Im- for in the image of God has God made humankind, so the reason why murder is not appropriate and why it has to be someone has to be held accountable if they take human life is because humans are the image of God, hmm. and so that to me says yeah all of those who were talking about the image of God being lost diminished or destroyed just weren't reading Scripture carefully enough, and and this happens throughout history we get these truisms that get said over and over again. And then people just take it for granted and nobody goes back to investigate the scriptures and see, mm-hmm. does it actually say that? Is that actually true? Yeah. And so I think it's really important for us to get this because of its ethical implications.
0: Yeah, you know, that You know that connects in some profound ways to, interestingly enough, the next question about encouraging others and particularly those yeah. who are marginalized. Yeah. Because one of the things I think about is if we have this ethical imperative that comes from... Being God's image, you know, mm-hmm. and seeing the God's image with he- with each other, then it changes yeah. how we care for those, for for all people, but it particularly does. for those who often are overlooked or often yes. have been treated less than. Um, yes. And so I would love for you to chat a little bit of, from your own experiences, the different ways that mm-hmm. you've kind of been involved in that encouragement of others. Um, mm. And, you know, I know that for you that's included both, you know, academic pieces and church pieces, but I would love for mm-hmm. you to share just a little bit about that journey for you.
2: Sure. Sure. Let me start with just a theological comment um, because we haven't really talked about this yet. I talked, I mentioned earlier that every human being is the image of God, that's our identity. This is different from how most people talk about the image of God. Most Christian scholars talk about the image of God as a capacity mm. that we possess or a function that we fulfill. And I actually think that's what gets us started off on the wrong foot and then has negative ethical implications. Because if you say that rationality is mm. what makes humans different from animals and rationality is, the, is then the basis for the image of God, then someone with a lower IQ by whoever's metric makes the IQ. Test then is less human or less the image of God. You end up with a sliding scale of humanity if you base it on Descartes' idea: "I think, therefore I am." Mm -hmm. If you make rationality the basis, then whose rationality? Which culture's form of reason actually is king? And this is why I think it's so important for us to ground the imago Dei in our identity, not in some capacity we possess that could be lost. Or, um, or in something that we do, that we could lose the ability to do. So, being the image has implications for how we should act, but it isn't itself those actions. So, this has huge implications for for disability, for cultural diversity, um, for all so- just all sorts of things. And I, I feel like I'm still unpacking these kind of month by month as I encounter more and more ways. That we act as though there's this certain ideal kind of human mm-hmm. that becomes the cookie cutter for everyone else, and we're all measured against that cookie cutter. So, yes, I'm, I'm learning to encourage voices that have been marginalized in different ways. Um, in the academic world, you you already mentioned, Beth, my work with ETS Women. For years, I had been a female member of the Evangelical Theological Society and have had felt like an extreme minority. Mm-hmm. There were just so few women in that space. And I kept wishing that someone would start a group where we could connect with each other and support each other and somehow feel a little less lonely. And I finally asked someone else to do it. Um, I asked Mimi Haddad, the President of Christians for Biblical Equality, I'm like Mimi. Can you please start a Facebook group for us? And she says, "I'm not on Facebook, but you should start a group." And so I did. Um, I, I didn't feel like I had the authority to do it; like I didn't have some kind of position that would that would make that makes make sense. But she didn't think I needed that, and so I started a Facebook group. And it's now I've now passed the baton on to others. But we have over mm-hmm. 500 members who mm-hmm. are women in evangelical, biblical, and theological scholarship, it's been such an encouraging space. And it's made, I think, a a real difference in how women feeling like they belong when they come to the annual meeting, because there's connections with people they've been talking to all year long. So that's one way that I've tried to create space for women in the academy. Um, But it's something that, that also happens on a weekly basis in my classes and in office hours as I meet with a student and the tries to say to me, you know, I'm just not really sure if I belong in this world. Mm. And I have the opportunity to look them in the eye and say, your voice matters. Mm. And I'm so glad you're here. And you might not fit this cookie cutter, but God didn't make that cookie cutter. This is like something that humans have come up with this, Mm. this, um, very limited picture of what success in the academy looks like and I believe you have a lot to offer and if you're willing to to if you're willing to pursue this knowing that it could be hard uphill climb because it wasn't built for you then you can help change it you can help be, become a place that others um others will feel at home so mm-hmm. I love having that conversation with students I love seeing the tears that come to their eyes when they realize that they're actually wanted yeah. and their voice actually matters. Yeah, And I do it in lots of small ways. I've gone through my um, all my PowerPoints and thought about how am I representing people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've gone through and swapped out images. For example, when I talk about Proverbs, I have image of Lady Wisdom up on the screen and it used to be a blonde woman running through a field. And now I've got a beautiful African-American woman on the screen as representing Lady Wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I I want my students, I want all my students to be able to see themselves in the biblical story and see that they belong. Mm -hmm. And that is just such a joy. I see, I I know not everyone notices that I'm doing it, but I see the looks on the faces of those who notice and, and it matters to them because they feel represented. That's such a joy. So as we're
1: continuing to talk about the different marginalized communities that you have a sense of connection to and you want to speak to the stories, I know in your book you wrote um, in a couple spaces about your cousin, Jane, and even your Mm -hmm. neighbor, Colton, and their experiences with disabilities, um, I think this is just really an area that the church can grow, like there's room for growth um, as we talk about like faith and disabilities. Um, So what insights would you have to offer, like even practical ones to the church, whether it's to Mm. lay leader or lay people or leaders about the diversity of abilities um, Mm. in being God's image and that it's concrete and why this matters in our daily life.
2: Yeah. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not somebody, I'm not the best person to ask about how can we make our churches more accessible to those with disabilities because I don't carry disability with me. I don't identify as someone who's Mm -hmm. disabled. And so there's a lot of things I probably don't see. But what I've learned from those who do experience disability is that um, there are issues of physical accessibility, the size font in our, on our, in our bulletins or on the screens, whether, if, our church ha- is blessed with a number of people who have neurological um, disabilities, and so I, you know, they've helped me become aware of ways that um, that church services can be really overwhelming for mm-hmm. those who are neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. And so, thinking about having um, quiet spaces, having ways, places that are safe to go to decompress if overstimulation happens. Yeah. Um, do you know physical things like do we have a wheelchair ramp to access our building Mm -hmm. is the wheelchair ramp where other people are entering the building or do they have to go around to some back corner is there a wheelchair ramp up to our stage or are we only expecting that wheelchair users are coming as consumers and not not full participants and those who Mm -hmm. can offer uh, a blessing and so i um i would encourage everyone out there who's in church ministry to begin asking that question and begin listening. Um, so there's issues of physical accessibility. There's also there's also language accessibility. There there can be kind of cultural barriers. Um, the 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 level of education of people in the church sometimes the words used from up front are, make the message inaccessible. Mm-hmm. And so we can think about class and education as we as we consider accessibility and then. And then we need to ask ourselves who is making the decisions in this church? And is our decision making body representative of who's actually here? Mm -hmm. And how can we begin to hear from those who are not um, typical? And and by typical, I'm thinking of that cookie cutter again middle aged, white, male, married. um, You know, these are, this is maybe in some congregations, many congregations, the default. And then anyone else who, who doesn't fit that in some way is different. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, do you have someone with chronic pain on your leadership team who can talk about their experience uh, with that, who, who can bring with them the empathy and the, the knowledge, the, the skills to offer pastoral care for those in chronic pain. Do you have someone who's developmentally disabled, who is being included in, in decision-making, um, Yeah, I think these are ways that we can begin to think outside the box. And when when the time comes for who should we nominate to be a deacon or an elder or a a member of a a ministry team, are we thinking of a cookie cutter or are we thinking more broadly like who's here and how can we pull them in and involve them and give them a voice?
0: Yeah, that's so important. You know, um, so I I am the only person in my home who is not neurodiverse. And so we have three kids and my husband are all have, are all neurodiverse. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting in church settings because it's an unseen disability in a certain kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so people see our kids and they don't always know like, why is, why is my kid ticking? Like moving their arms a lot Mm -hmm. or why, why is the sound of someone coming over to pray for them? and there's multiple people doing that, why are they overwhelmed? Like, why is that Mm -hmm. bothering them rather than helping Mm -hmm. them? And so being able to have even quiet spaces they can go to and people thinking about them, in understanding, like, oh, they experience this differently. Um, yeah. And when people do that, it actually—it's such a—it's like a beautiful kindness to be able to see mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and to see the ways that they also bring so much um, yes. because they yeah. come from mm-hmm. different perspectives and yes. they see the space and the experience and worship differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you no, know, I just think that's just so incredibly helpful. Um, mm-hmm. Um, I also thought of the comment you made earlier about how the picture of being God's image, when we've thought about it as rationality, how it Mm. cuts off this part, um, and diminishes the humanity of, um, Mm -hmm. people who have cognitive, um, you know, impairment Mm -hmm. or other things. Um, my husband's brother, um, had a stroke when he was two And that left him with cognitive impairment and physical impairment. And so my husband and I, for a long time, we were like, we need theologians who are out there talking about the image of God and really like fighting for John's brother, to be human, fully human, mm-hmm, fully mm-hmm, valued, mm-hmm. and I think that um, that you that your book and you so p- press for this. I think it's just a really important thing for people to hear, whether they have had that personally in their experience or not, because it mm-hmm. affects how we view all people around us.
2: And yes, so. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So glad you appreciated that. I I w- I was able to video chat with Colton. Uh, the other day, and for those who haven't read the book yet, Colton was a very special neighbor of ours when we lived in Alberta, and he still video chats with my husband several times a week, almost every day, a weekday. He finds out what time my husband's getting off work, and he calls him, and they video chat on his walk home. And um, Colton still hangs out with him while he does his chores, but they just do it on video. Mm-hmm. And we had some friends here from Three Hills; we were just able to send a book back with them for mm-hmm. Colton, and okay. he was. He called my husband seven times that day, saying they, they're not here yet. What? Why? Why haven't they brought me the book? Why, when am I going to get it? And so finally, finally, Colton got on his bike and rode across town and showed up at the door and said, "I want my book." So then, awesome. then when we. Uh, when he was on video call, he's like, okay, what, what page am I on? And so I checked my book. It's page 158 that I tell his story. And so he turned to page 158 and held it up to the video. Is this the one? I was like, that's the one about you, Colton. And now he's no doubt memorized the page since yesterday because he is so excited to read about himself again. And he wants to know if he's going to be in the next book too. (laughs) (laughs) The pressure is on. Yes. The pressure is (laughs) on.
1: So we know that you have a whole host of titles and roles. So you're a professor, you're a mother, you're a wife, a writer, a speaker, and so many other responsibilities. So we just want to know what things do you do to nourish your own spiritual life while Mm. being busy? Mm.
2: Well, we already talked about how church is non-negotiable for me. And mm-hmm. I show up at church with my journal, ready to take notes. And I'm not always mm-hmm. only taking notes on the sermon, but I, I really find God speaks to me through the music, through the prayer. Mm-hmm. I'm always listening for mm-hmm. what is the Spirit saying to me in this service? Mm-hmm. Um, because I believe that there's, you know, there's absolute truth, and then there's the truth that God makes alive through the power of His Spirit in our hearts. And that, mm-hmm. that happens for me on a regular basis in my church. And then I've I recently found, uh, with the help of one of my students, found a new app called Lectio 365 hmm. okay. that I've been using almost daily. It has a morning a morning um, devotional and then an evening devotional. It's kind of Lectio Divina style, so slow reading mm-hmm. of scripture, and things to pray about. It's very It's very calm and methodical. And it's wonderful to listen to as I'm getting ready or as I walk to work. It just gives me a space to quietly reflect and, and prayerfully reflect. And as always, I'm, I'm always reading. I find myself nourished by learning. And so I'm, I've always got several books going that I read on evenings or weekends. And I find that God equips me and meets me when I'm reading. That's
0: wonderful. Okay, so we're at the last section of our show. And this is where we do the kind of fast questions that are tended to be fun, our marginalia questions. (laughs) And uh, the purpose is to get to know you more as a person. Um, And so I'm going to start, I'm actually going to start with a question that we kind of had lower on the list. But because you just mentioned it, what are a few books Mm. you're reading recently that are really Mm. impacting you?
2: Oh well, right now I'm l- listening to Hillbilly Elegy
0: um,
2: mm-hmm. because I've been challenged. Even at, we talked about including all people, mm-hmm. and I've been challenged by the fact that I don't know that I um, have fully included in, and pulled into my orbit those who you know find their find themselves in the, in working class Rust Belt America, and I just. Um, So I I saw that book and I thought I've heard about this for years. I feel like I should read it just in for for the hope of being able to understand, develop empathy, and sort of common ground with with people who have a different upbringing than I do. Um, One of the books that just blew my mind while I was working on this book was Bethany McKinney Fox's Jesus and the Way of Disability, Mm -hmm. which was which fed into the sections I wrote on disability. She was just really challenging and. Um, That was a really helpful book. Awesome. Okay. And if you could
1: describe yourself in three words, what would they be?
2: Ambitious Mm -hmm. and called. I've Mm -hmm. always had a strong sense of calling and trying to lean into that. And I guess I would say for the third word, equipped. Hmm. It's... Mm -hmm kind of reflecting all the years of education that I've had and all the books that are behind me on this <laughs> this video <laughs> call. Um, I, I have a lot, and to whom much is given, much will be required. Mm-hmm. So I feel called and equipped, and I guess the ambition puts that to work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, is there a show or movie that you are really into right now?
2: And So would- my mom –
0: And what do you love about it?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So my mom is here visiting for the week and um, we thought it would be fun to find something to watch together. I don't really watch much at all. Um, I'm usually reading uh, or emailing her on social media instead. So um, we decided to, to watch Anne with an E, which I know is not new, but like, I love Anne of Green Gables. I Mm -hmm. was a little bit afraid that Anne with an E would be a disappointment. I'm like, how do I do this without Megan follows? Oh yeah. But yeah actually every single character is hitting it out of the park. We've watched the first four episodes over the past week. And I am really struck by how they've included, how they've been like trauma informed
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and how they're retelling the story. Like Anne has these flashbacks and you can see her freeze and you're experiencing the trauma of her childhood. And I just feel like it's really helpful to see that this happens to people who've had trauma and it, and, you know, she's got adults or even classmates yelling at her trying to get her attention. And she's like, shut down. And I think, wow, wow, insightful. So that's been kind of fun.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I love that show. And I I, I think, you know, as a Canadian, uh, working in a Canadian context, or I guess an American Canadian, working in that context, I'm always I'm always like, yeah, and then I'm going to go to PEI and visit where Anne
2: is. And like, yep. yeah, I'm
0: doing that this summer. So I'm super excited. Oh, so I just had to put that in because I'm very excited about it. Okay. Awesome. <laughs>
2: okay. My daughter actually played Anne in Anne of Green Gables at <gasps> Prairie Christian Academy last oh year. Goodness. So we flew up to Canada to watch her as Anne. And she was amazing. That's amazing. So that's also why we love the story. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So what,
1: oh. so what do you love about the city where you live now or the city that you grew up in?
2: Hmm. So I live in La Mirada, California, which is where Biola university is. And the thing I love about it is, pro- pro- <clears throat> excuse me, not true for everybody, But we happen to get a house that's within walking distance of campus, so I walk Mm -hmm. to work. We walk to church, and my kids walk to school. We can even walk to the store. We could walk to Home Depot. We could walk to Walmart. We could walk to Menchie's and get frozen yogurt. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's pretty amazing in its walkability. Um, We can walk Mm -hmm. to the library. We can walk to the park. Like it's just a kind of amazing for Los Angeles County. It's pretty incredible, and I love to walk and. I have not had a day yet since I moved here almost two years ago when I have not seen flowers blooming. And mm. since I spent four years in Alberta, <laughs> where we had <laughs> nine months of winter, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> this is a really big deal, and I'm still not over it yet. Like there are flowers all year round, <laughs> so that's mm. that's been a treat.
0: So, what is the best compliment that you've ever been given?
2: Hmm. I have to say when a student says to me, you have transformed the way that I read the Bible mm-hmm. and the Old Testament has come alive for me. And thankfully, that's a compliment that I get to hear on a pretty regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I have big classes of undergraduates here at Biola. And so I have an opportunity to to reach a lot of students. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's through people who've read, read my books and who've been they know there's they know the Bible is the word of God and they're supposed to love the Old Testament, but they don't know how. Mm. And bearing God's name or being God's image has helped them to connect the Old and New Testament. And they feel like, oh, now I understand why I'm here yeah. and what this book is supposed to do. That I I can't think of a higher compliment.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh.
2: Well, Carmen, it's been a real pleasure
0: talking with you today. Thank you for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was this was fun.
0: <laughs> and we also like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to help us, please share the podcast with others um, and subscribe on your podcast player. You can connect with us more on bridgingtheology.com or on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram feeds at Bridging Theology.